Good afternoon, everybody. My name is Jordan. I'm one of the pastors here at Renaissance. Uh, shout out to everybody being with us in person, as well as those joining us on Bedside Baptist, at Bedside Baptist uh, today online. So over the past couple of years, I've really changed the way that we go about our sermon series. Um, initially, when we first started things at Renaissance, I would plan sermon series that I thought would be like really engaging and really practical for people. Uh, in some ways, I was wanting people to feel like they should come to church. As I've grown over the years as a Christian and as a pastor, uh, I've realized that a lot of the stuff that might be more inviting and more practical and more things like you feel like you really want to hear are not always what we need to hear. And for the last number of years, I've just been wrestling with this one scripture that has like changed my life. And so for the last five weeks, we've been going through this one scripture, allowing Jesus to speak to us about what it looks like to follow him. It's a big word called discipleship. And for the last five weeks, we've been looking at it. What does Jesus actually mean when he calls you to be his disciple? What does it look like for you to affiliate, for you to link your life to Jesus's life? Practically speaking, what would that be? What would be some marks of you? And so what we've been looking at for the last number of weeks uh, is just this one scripture, Luke 9, 23. It says this, then he said to them all, this is Jesus speaking, if anyone desires to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. And so, so much of our lives in America, there's this like consumeristic Western approach towards Christianity, which puts us at the center of it. And we've just been trying to free Jesus to speak on his own behalf about what it looks like to follow him. And so for the first week, we looked at this concept of desire. So in the first part of the verse, Jesus says, if anyone desires to follow after me. One of the biggest misconceptions about following Jesus is that I think so many of us genuinely believe that to follow Jesus means a life of misery. And it's like, well, either I could be happy or I'll just follow Jesus. And that's not really what Jesus is after. Jesus says, if anyone desires, and the first week we talked about this concept that what Jesus is trying to do is give us a brand new set of affections that properly understood to follow him, it would like replace the things that you're actually desiring. And the fuel for you to actually be a disciple of Jesus, to follow Jesus, wouldn't be drudgery, it wouldn't be duty, it wouldn't be obligation, it would be desire. That you would be marked as a person who desires God. And that is a work that God does in our hearts over our entire lives, but that is the root of what it means to be a disciple. Uh, the second week, we looked at this concept of denial and what it looks like to deny ourselves. And Lord knows this is probably the most difficult thing for me to do, is that every single day I make a decision to look at my will for my life, and I choose to accept Jesus' invitation to lay down my will in exchange for his will. Now, what we looked at that week is this concept that whenever someone gives you an opportunity of a lifetime, it's always given on their terms, not yours. Like if somebody offers you something like really, really valuable, it's always given on their terms, not yours. So when Jesus tells us that if we want to follow him, it's going to be on his terms, that is part of the mystery and part of the beauty of what it means to follow Jesus. In the third week, we looked at this concept of daily dedication. So Jesus tells us, if we, if we desire to follow him, we have to deny ourselves and to take up our cross daily. And it is this daily dedication and decision that we make to follow Jesus. 
I remember when I was a kid and then I first got baptized at Shiloh Baptist Church. And um, this is back in the day in the 80s when when you got baptized, you wore white socks and uh, a robe to go to the baptism water. And the choir was singing, I have decided to follow Jesus. And I've always loved that song and I still do love that song. But the way I understood it then was that one day I'll make a decision to follow Jesus and that decision is permanent. As I've really recently discovered, the decision to follow Jesus is every single morning. Every morning you wake up, you have new mercies from God, and that is a, a cause for praise and celebration. But we also have a new mission and a new mandate. So God gives us new mercies and also a new mission that every single day we have to make this decision again to pick up our cross and to follow him. Yesterday's confession and yesterday's dedication is not enough. And so last week we looked at this other concept of how growth in Christianity actually works. And uh, in so many other ways, I've thought that for me to grow, I need to learn more things. I need to be around the right people, all very helpful things. But the pattern of growth in Christianity is from death to life. Jesus says, if you want to be my disciple, you have to lose your life. Because in losing your life, then you will find it. So people picked up their crosses, and they weren't taking them to Trader Joe's. They were taking their cross to their place of execution. It was a place of laying down their lives in search of finding something on the other side. And last week we talked about that if we are to be disciples of Jesus, we all have our own processes that we have to go through, that Jesus is inviting you to a process that may feel like death, but check this out, there is life on the other side. There is resurrection after there's crucifixion. And today I wanna look at this word called devotion. Devotion. And here's where we're going today. You are called to be devoted to a person, not to a system. Jesus says these two words that I hope you would hear as an invitation for you every single morning. Follow me. It's not to follow a plan. It's not to follow a set of instructions. It's to follow him. And Jesus is calling you and he's calling me that our lives will be marked by devotion to him as the person. And so that's where we're going today, talking about that. And, you know, if you look at the concept of discipleship, Jesus was not the first person to have disciples. As a matter of fact, uh, every, every rabbi, prominent rabbi, would have had their own disciples. John the Baptist had his disciples. Discipleship was something that people did. And here's what it was in very simple terms. Someone would see a rabbi in whom they were interested in, and they would just leave their home and be with them. And that was it. And they would just do what the rabbi told them to do. There was no syllabus in the rabbi's life course for instruction. There were no metrics on, you know, this semester you'll do this and that semester you'll do this because the disciple was never in control of the process. They just followed the rabbi. And in many ways, one of the biggest challenges to discipleship is in our American way, we're like addicted to metrics. And like, well, what do I need to do? When do I need to do it? And do I, need, do I pray once a day or twice a day? Do I pray in the morning or in the evening? Do I read this version of the Bible or that version of the Bible? And we've lost the heart of what it means to be a disciple. Jesus is calling you to come and to kick it with him and to let his life shape your life. One of my favorite documentaries on Netflix is uh, called Euro Dreams of Sushi. And it's about this 85-year-old sushi, sushi chef. Say that three times fast. In uh, Tokyo. And he has uh, one of the best restaurants in the world. It's won all types of awards. If I ever make it to Tokyo, I really want to go there. And um, 
it chronicles this master chef who's won all the awards, and he's training his sons to be master chefs as well. And the, the process of their apprenticeship to him is like so mind-boggling to me. So for the first number of years, all one of his sons did was learn how to fold the napkins. Every day he would come into the restaurant like, I'm here to be a master chef, and he would be like, all right, they're the napkins, and he would just walk away. And like these hot towels that you get on, a, on arrival, and he was not able to do anything other than fold hot towels for years. Now, in America, we would have quit so long ago because you're wasting my potential. Bro, I'm nice with the knives. What are we doing over here? <laughs> Folding towels? Finally, he made it, and he was now able to do the rice. And this, did, this dude did the rice for like 15 years straight. All he did every day was just make the rice. I want to taste his rice because that joint better be... <laughs> the best rice I've ever had. And he would come in and he would say, not there yet. And that was it. It was like, mm, not there yet. Because he wanted it to be perfect. Now, in America, we train people to be franchises, not to be chefs. Franchises give you instructions on exactly what to do, the exact formula to replicate it, so that Chipotle will taste like Chipotle, whether it's in New York or L.A. But what God is inviting us to is more like an apprenticeship under a master chef who calls you, and the first aspect of discipleship is leaving control. You're hopping in the, in the passenger seat, not the driver's seat. And there's not going to be feedback on the pace that you think there should be feedback. There's not going to be direction on the pace that you think that you should have direction in the manner that you should get it. Following Jesus means that every single day you wake up and you make the rice. And one day, he's going to turn you into a master chef. Somebody that can go somewhere else and do your own thing. That would be like transformative. So one of the concepts about Christianity that's so profound, and even if you don't know where you stand with Christianity and whether or not you believe in Jesus' resurrection and all those different things, here's one thing that is one of the most interesting things about Christianity. Christianity is the only religion in which there is no uh, geographical location that owns it. So this is one African theologian by the name of Laman Sane, and he says it like this. If you think about it, Christianity is the only faith in which there is no center. Wherever the other major religions of the world began, that is still their center today. Islam started in Arabia, at Mecca, and the Middle East is still the center of Islam. Buddhism started in the Far East, and that's still the center of Buddhism. Same thing with Hinduism. It began in India, and it is still predominantly an Indian religion. Christianity is the exception. It's always, the center is always moving. The original center of Christianity was Jerusalem, but then the Greek Gentiles embraced it and it moved to the Mediterranean, and then later to Africa and to Rome, where it stayed for a number of centuries, later to Europe and the Western world, and now to Asia and Africa and South America. The only place Christianity hasn't really popped off is Antarctica. <laughs> now, why is this? Why is it so flexible? Because Jesus was not about starting franchises that have to be done in one specific certain cultural context. He was about forming disciples to be people who could be world changers, people whose lives were so closely connected to his life that when you put them in different settings, they'd be able to bring the gospel in that context in powerful ways. Jesus doesn't want you, no shade to people who work at Chipotle, Jesus doesn't want you to be a line cook at Chipotle. He wants you to train under him. He wants his life to rub off on your life. He wants to change you. He wants to form you. But it's not going to be at the pace and the term that you think it should be. 
So first and foremost, I want us to have a holy imagination. I want us to take everything we've thought about what it means to follow him, and I want to throw it away. And I want us to go back to what he intended by those words when he said, to follow me. He's calling you to him. He's not calling you to do anything, first and foremost. Yes, we will do things later, but the primary calling of Jesus is to himself. This is one book called The Call by Oz Guinness. Um, and he writes this beautiful book about the calling of every Christian. And so many Christians, I, I've had this conversation so many times, we're, we're obsessed with what is God calling me to do? And that's an important question. It's a very important question. The much more important question is, who is God calling me to? Your primary calling for everybody who wants to follow Jesus is to him. And what you will do will figure itself out later, I promise you that. So Jesus has first given us this invitation to follow him. And Lord knows, um, properly understood, this is a sobering and freeing, but also kind of a scary proposition. Because if I hop in the passenger seat and he hasn't told me where we're going, Lord knows so many people are just kind of filled with the concept of fear. And I, I think this is true for me in some, in some ways. I don't question if God is good sometimes. I question what God's goodness is going to look like in my life. I know he's good, but I don't know what his goodness, how his goodness is going to be revealed and what that path is going to look like in my life. And so sometimes I'm afraid to follow Jesus because I just don't know where he's going to take me. Other times it's not that I'm afraid, it's because I just get busy and I just get distracted. I start out the mornings with so much good intention to follow Jesus faithfully, and by noon I've forgotten all about him. And so I might, you know, I try to surround myself with different rhythms I call them rhythms of grace, where I am forced to re remember Jesus throughout my day. Sometimes I'll write a scripture down, and every single time I'm standing in any line, I'll take out the scripture from my wallet, and I'll read it. So I'll be in the bodega just with, this, with an index card reading the scripture, and that's my prompt. That my prompt is whenever I'm standing in any line for the elevator, I'll take out my wallet, I'll take out my scripture from the index card, and I'll read it. Because I just need to be reminded, I need rhythms of grace that remind me of who I'm called to, because left to myself, I just, I just forget about Jesus very, very easily. And so I want us to look at this scripture again today and empty out and consider what Jesus is calling us to do. What does he mean when he says those two beautiful words to follow me? What does he mean? First and foremost, it is a call steeped in grace. It is a call steeped in grace. Um, the call is given to anyone because there are no preconditions. Jesus starts this by saying, if anyone, and he really, it's a call to anyone because there truly are no preconditions. What does it mean to steep something? Uh, my first um, Christmas with my wife's family in Jamaica, I was trying to make a, a good impression, so I asked all about what everybody was into, and I tried to make this like beautiful presentation of the Christmas gifts, and I realized that like all of you know, my mother-in-law and all their aunties, they just love tea. And I was like, well, the, the blacks, when it's hot outside, we drink iced tea. Not my Caribbean people. They drink hot tea all year round in every season, every condition. So I tried to get my, my mother-in-law um, like a really nice tea set. And these infusers, it was like this astronaut that would hang on the cup of the coffee. And you would just see the tea, the tea leaves start to infuse and it would steep. And when something steeps in the water, what happens is it just like changes everything about that cup. 
So this previously clear, empty water is now changed into this delicious tea, fragrant. The call to follow Jesus has first been steeped in grace, meaning that the call to follow Jesus is not a pass-fail, it is not a graded metric system, it is steeped in grace, that God knows that you're weak and he invites you to follow him anyway. Have you ever thought about that? That God is fully aware of your weaknesses. God is fully aware of your past. God is fully aware of what has happened to you. God is fully aware of your limitations. And the invitation still comes to you to follow him. What kind of, what kind of person would Jesus be to give you a call to follow him that demands you do something that he knows you can't do? That's not a Jesus worth following. And by God's grace, that's, that's not who he is. And one of the things that we need to be liberated to do is to embrace our weaknesses. To live in the flesh means that you have weaknesses. To live in skin means that there are some things that you will want to do that you cannot do on your own strength. And you will need God's grace and God's help to do it. You know, one of the things that I've been thinking about the last couple of weeks is this one time in Scripture where it's a pretty confusing Scripture for a lot of theologians And so many people don't even talk about it because they're afraid people would lose faith in Jesus if you really talked about it and understood it, uh, or if you really, really flushed it out. So let me just kind of dip into my very nerdy theological bag for like 42 seconds. There's something in theology called Christology, which is basically the study of Christ. It's this doctrine of Christ. Who is he? I have what's called a very high Christology. I believe that Jesus is not just a good teacher or a good moral instructor. Jesus is the sinless savior that left heaven. He is God in flesh that came from heaven to bear my sins on the cross and he was resurrected physically on the third day. I have a really high Christology about my thoughts about Jesus. I believe that Jesus is everything. His grace is sufficient. He is God who has come to earth. He is a fullness of God in physical display. He is the visible image of the invisible God as it says in Colossians. That being said, to live in the flesh means that there are weaknesses. Jesus, when he was about to carry the cross up the hill, as you see in Luke 24, it says that Jesus, as he was walking, he needed help to carry the cross up the hill. And there was a man named Simon the Cyrene that had to help Jesus carry the cross up the hill. Why is that? Is it because Jesus didn't want to carry the cross? It was, because, was it because he was not willing? No, he was willing. He was wanting. But baked into the flesh, to live inside of skin means that there are weaknesses. Weaknesses are not sins. Weaknesses are just things that you're not able to do on your own strength. The call to follow Jesus means that first and foremost, you're going to need to embrace your weaknesses and realize that Jesus is aware of your weaknesses. Hebrews 4 says, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but he was at all points tested and remained without sin. So Jesus knows that you're weak and the call that he gives you and me to follow him is steeped in grace. He's not waiting to grade you tomorrow night to see how you did. That's the American Jesus. That's not what Jesus is in scripture. All throughout the New Testament, if you just looked at the lives of the disciples, what you will see over and over again is constant failure, constant departure from what Jesus was doing. And Jesus was willing to bring them back in every single morning with new mercies Peter failed Jesus miserably, and Peter was the one who preached the first sermon in the new church. Your failures don't disqualify you from Jesus. 
You know what disqualifies you from Jesus? It's, it's our pride. It's our pride that says, I can do this on my own. That's the only thing that's going to put you on the outs with Jesus. So first and foremost, the call to follow him is steeped in grace. It is a call to embrace your weaknesses because when we are weak, then we are strong. We need Jesus to follow Jesus. He's a shepherd. We are the sheep. Without him, we would be lost, and he knows this about us. So first and foremost, it's a call steeped in grace. Steeped in grace. Number two, uh, to follow him means set, setting a new priority. So Jesus is saying, follow me. And it's a, a sharp departure from what you had been doing. So whenever you see someone in Scripture follow Jesus, what you literally see them do is they leave what they had been doing, and now they go in a different direction. This is one scripture where Jesus calls a man named Levi, and Levi was a tax collector, very hated by people in his community. And when Jesus gave Levi this call to follow him, Levi left the tax booth, and he went with Jesus to follow him. And for you, the call of Jesus on your life is to leave everything and to follow him. Again, I know how hard that is because every single morning I wake up thinking about what that is because I don't know where Jesus is always going to take me and what it's going to demand of me. You know, a couple of weeks ago, I mentioned this one scripture, and I've been studying it since to get a better handle of it. And what does it mean for Jesus? Why, is he, why am I saying it's a, it's a new priority? Later down in the chapter in Luke 9, verses 59 through 62, it says this. Then he said to another, follow me. Lord, he said, first, let me go bury my father. But he told him, let the dead bury the de- their own dead. But you go and spread the good news of the kingdom of God. Another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first, let me go and say goodbye to those at my house. But Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now, I was wrestling with that scripture for for a couple of weeks now, and I've been thinking like, Lord, that's like you going hard in the paint on that joint. Like, they were just trying to do good things, and like everybody would say that this is a good thing. And I noticed... Baked into this, Jesus is not opposed to you having a family. Jesus is not opposed to you loving people in your family well. Jesus actually mandated that we love people well. The problem in this is something you'll notice in the language. In both cases, they say this word, Lord, first let me do this. And uh, in other words, you, but first this. I want to follow you, Jesus, but first let me just do this real quick. I want to follow you, but first, let me just make sure I get enough money in the bank first, and then I'm really going to follow you. I want to follow you with my relationships, but first, let me have a little fun first. I want to follow you, but first, let me do this. And Jesus is saying to follow him truly is a a brand new priority, that he is first. Now, this doesn't mean that you don't have a job, you don't have other relationships. It means that the way you interact with Jesus shapes everything else that you do. And so... You know, I think about this all the time. We just had a marriage retreat yesterday, and um, we were doing a lot of... I thought about a lot of my own history and how I've grown as a husband. And I remember in the early days when, like, my wife would get on my nerves, I would just be like, I am not accepting her apology. Like, I just want her to be miserable for, like, four hours, and then maybe I will accept her apology after she has wallowed a little bit. Um, and then there's this one scripture uh, that says, if any of you like, want to come to the altar and pray, and you know that your brother or sister has something against you, stop. 
Leave your gift at the altar. First go be reconciled to your brother and sister, and then come in and pray. And I remember thinking about, like, yo, Jesus, bro, you're bugging. Like, I, I can't even pray. I can't do anything until I first do what you told me to do. So it's not that I don't have other relationships and many other things that I'm doing. It's just that Jesus now shapes my other relationships. He shapes everything else. That's what it means for him to be the priority in your life. I don't know all your stories, but I do know this. Jesus does not want you settling for cultural Christianity. We've mentioned this before. Cultural Christianity is adding Jesus to the life that you have already chosen. You're going to do this no matter what. Let me first do this. And let me just sprinkle a little bit of Jesus on top of it. And to follow him means that you're setting a new priority. That's what he talks about, denying yourself and picking up your cross. Dead people don't carry their crosses to Trader Joe's. They carry it to the place of the execution. It's, it's, it's for what Jesus is calling us to do. Here's this one quote from this book called Essentialism by Greg McCown. It's such a powerful quote about this concept of priority. He says this, The word priority came into the English language in the 1400s. It was singular. It meant the very first or prior thing. It stayed singular for the next 500 years. Only in the 1900s did we pluralize the term and start talking about priorities, plural. Illogically, we reasoned that by changing the word, we could bend reality. Somehow, we would now be able to have multiple first things. People and companies routinely try to do just that. And here's a line that really hit me in the chest. He says this, this gives the impression of many things being the priority, but actually means nothing is. Jesus is asking us to set a new priority, to trust him, to trust him. That's what it means to follow him. That's what it means to be faithful to him. Now, in setting a new priority doesn't mean that you always know what's happening. It just means that if and when Jesus is calling you to make a left, it's, you're going to make a left. If he says to go right, that means go right. Now, I want to say one thing because I've had this one conversation with a lot of people at Renaissance. When we talk about this thing of self-denial, I feel like it introduces a little bit of like just people like are starting to obsess on is everything that I'm doing perfectly what Jesus wants me to do. And here's the good news about Jesus. Jesus doesn't just direct you. He will redirect you. A lot of us, I don't want you developing analysis paralysis and wanting to make sure that every single thing you do, should I go here for brunch or, or there? Should I serve in kids or set up? Just pick one. Just pick one. And then trust that Jesus is going to redirect you if it's not the right thing. He's a good shepherd. He's not an okay shepherd. He's a, he's a good shepherd. And a good shepherd will guide you even if you got lost. Jesus will go after the one that is lost, actually. And so I don't want us living in, like, fear about how well are you doing. Um, and that leads us to the, to the last point. Last point is it's not about succeeding but abiding. It's not about succeeding. It's not about doing a good job. It's not about being better than someone else. It's not about metrics. It's about remaining. It's about abiding. Once you introduce metrics, it will leave you feeling prideful or like a failure. And so I will never answer the question for you, what does it look like for you to follow Jesus? Again, I want you to have a holy imagination. But it's not about the metrics. On the highway of metrics, there are two exits. Pride, because you kind of did it, or discouragement, because you didn't live up to it. 
Both of those are not what Jesus wants for you. The only standard that Jesus has for you is abiding. In John 15, it's this whole chapter about abiding, remaining with Jesus, staying with him, not leaving him, every single day making that decision to walk with him. In Matthew 11, actually, Jesus uses this illustration of what it means to come to him. He says, come to you all who are weary and laden, and I will give you rest. And he says, take my yoke upon you. Take my yoke. And yoke is not a word that if you grew up in non-farming settings, you would understand. What Jesus was saying is this. Whenever they would have a young ox, they would pair that young ox with an older ox who knew what they were doing. And the young ox would just have its yoke, and it would be yoked and tied to a, a bigger ox, a stronger ox, one that was more experienced. And Jesus is basically saying this, just take my yoke on you. It's going to feel a little heavy, but it's going to be a whole lot lighter than the other yokes in the world. And essentially, I'm not calling you to, to figure out anything on your own. I'm just calling you to walk alongside me and to take it on intentionally on your own shoulders. And so the call that Jesus is giving us truly is to abide with him. He's calling us to show up every single morning and fold the hand towels. He's calling us to show up every single day and make the rice for 10 years straight. He's calling us to a lifelong apprenticeship with him where every single day we make the decision to abide with him. Now, how do we do that? I do want to give some practical insight on that. Um, to abide with Jesus means these three things. It means that we have his spirit, we listen to his words, and we are surrounded by his people. We have his spirit, number one, that for everybody who has placed faith in Christ, their faith in Jesus, Scripture says, Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans, but that when I depart, I will leave the Holy Spirit. And all we need to do is ask Jesus to be the Lord of our lives, and he will give us the gift of the Holy Spirit free of charge. I don't know the magic formula. There's no magic formula for it. It's just contrition, repentance, and inviting the Holy Spirit to live in our lives. And we need that because the Holy Spirit is truly the one that's going to guide us forward. No pastor on earth, no church on the planet can do for you what the Holy Spirit is going to do to you because the Holy Spirit lives inside of us and confirms and points us to the words of Jesus and gives us life. Number two, we listen to his words and this is something that's just very uh, practical for us. We need to constantly be in rhythms of grace where we're hearing the words of Jesus for our lives. I don't know what you should read right now. Right now, I'm reading through the book of Luke, and I'm just reading it again and again and again and again. Some days, I read something, and I'm like, yo, that was the most profound thing I've ever read. Other days, I read it, and it feels like nothing really spectacular at all. Actually, most days are like that for me. Jesus is calling us to abide with him, meaning that we're always around him, not doing anything spectacular. I'll say it like this. All of my best friendships, we go through long periods when we're hanging out that we truly don't do anything. Like the, the most immature relationships that I have, we always need a plan of doing something together. But the people that I really kick it with, they just come through. They just pull up. And when they pull up, we don't have a plan. We don't have an agenda. We just abide. And check this out. Those relationships have been the most formative of me because in just being around each other with no agenda, we've gotten into some of those amazing conversations. And so we create intentional space to hang out together, to abide, to kick it. And in that, we do have some organic and beautiful conversations. The call that Jesus is asking us to do, to follow him, to abide with him, means that we are just surrounding ourselves with his words of our lives that is raining down on us all the time. 
And some days, it will not be exciting. Other days, you'll find the transformative power in it. And the last one is we need to be surrounded by his people. I don't know all of you, but I do know this. Um, We were never intended to do Christianity on our own. It's not an intellectual thing. We need other people reminding us of God's grace. We need other people challenging us about our selfishness. We need other people. One of my favorite scriptures in Hebrews 10, it says this, Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. Let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering, since he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to provoke love and good works, not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other and all the more as you see the day approaching. Uh, This is definitely going to date me, but growing up on the playground, there was always somebody, like if two kids were about to fight, there'd be one person who would provoke a fight from breaking out. We used to play this game called Knock Your Mama Off the Bridge. Did you ever play that game? (laughs) If two people were arguing, somebody would put a stick on someone else's shoulder and they would say, knock his mama off the bridge. And as soon as somebody touched that stick, fists were flying because... Not because they wanted to fight. It was because somebody provoked them to do it. The scripture says that you and I need to provoke one another, not for stupidity like fighting, but for love and good works. And then it says, not neglecting to gather together. What he's basically saying, the author of Hebrews is basically saying is this. Y'all need to show up to be around other people, and you need to be considering how I can provoke other people towards love and good works. Your attendance here is not about coming and listening to me. It's also about provoking one another towards love and good works, towards encouraging people, towards pushing people to do something that they might not have done on their own. That's what provoking is. And so in order for us to truly abide, we truly need to embody these things, have his spirit, listen to his words, and be surrounded by his people. And as we're surrounded by his people, we're provoking each other towards love and good works. Ultimately, though, what Jesus is calling us to do today and tomorrow to follow him are, are to take his words and to literally put them into our lives. I want to end with the scripture in Matthew 7, 24. This is Jesus teaching. He says, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the rivers rose, and the winds blew and pounded the house, yet It did not collapse because its foundation was on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the rivers rose, and the winds blew and pounded the house, and it collapsed. It collapsed with a great crash. Here's what Jesus is teaching us, that if you decide to build your life on Jesus, that there will be a period of time where there is no evidence that what you're doing is better than what you would have done on your own. However, if you commit your way to Jesus' words, what he's saying, one day there will come some certainty that when you look around and when the storms come and the winds blow and the rains really pour down, you'll see that your house is still standing and the other ones have collapsed. And what Jesus is asking you to do is to commit your way to his life, to his words, to build your life on his life to follow him. 
And one day, he gives us the promise that you will find certainty. For some of you in this room, you've been holding out because you've been wanting certainty before commitment. And that's not what it means to follow Jesus. He will give you the certainty. One day you will get it. I promise you, you'll get it. But he's first inviting you to build your house on his words first. Now, I don't know what that means for all of you. But we're going to pray right now. And I want you to consider right now, what is the Lord's invitation for you right now? What is he asking you to to do? What is that invitation to you right now? Let's pray. Jesus, um, I would prefer to have certainty before I have commitment, committed to you. And Lord, I, I want to trust you more. I want to give you more of my life. I want to give you me. Holy Spirit, would you encourage me? Would you surround me with other people to encourage me, to provoke me, to live a life of more trust in you? And Lord, trusting that you are building something beautiful that will never come crashing down, something that will stand in every single season. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen.